Welcome to the Focus Today podcast with Perry Atkinson. Well, welcome to Focus Today. I'm your host, Perry Atkinson. You know, every day uh, when we do the news here uh, during the morning program on The Dove, we talk about business and inflation and high prices and the stock market, all of which now has become very confusing to me. But we have an expert today. Uh, Michael Wilkerson's back with us. He's an investor, strategic advisor, the founder of uh, Stormwall.com. As the author of a fascinating book, Why America Matters, The Case for a New Exceptionalism. He's also the chairman of the board of Charity Water, a nonprofit organization to help resolve the global water crises. And the website is stormwall.com, stormwall.com. Michael, good to see you. How are you, friend? Very doing well. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for your time again. Uh, lots to talk about. All right. What's making the stock market go up when inflation's through the roof? You know, it's very interesting. The stock market seems to be absolutely ignoring rising rates. You know, a lot uh, of experts, so-called experts, predicted at the time that as interest rates were rising, and if you recall, they went from just above zero to 5%, above 5%, in around a year. Now, we had never seen a rise like that, and everyone was certain this was going to presage uh, inflation and, and stock market crash, etc. cetera. Uh, the markets have not reacted at all, and the economy seems to be chugging along at least uh, certain parts of it in ways that uh, most people did not expect. So, beginning of this year, uh, it was pretty conventional wisdom call to say, all right, we're going to see recession in the first half of the year. I thought so much. Myself, I said it. But the one thing that many people did not say, and I've been very consistent on, is that we're not going to see an end to the inflationary trends that uh, that we saw happen last year. We did see an easing in the summer, but the underlying issues that are driving inflation have continued. And I think that's part of what is going on in the stock market is that uh, people are looking for places to put their money, looking for something to do with um, with excess liquidity uh, and all of these things. But I'm still of the view that we've not seen the worst of the inflationary pressures, and at some point that does have to catch up with uh, with the broader economy. All right, a couple more questions along that line. Do you expect uh, a couple of bounces still in interest rates? Uh, it's very it's interesting to see. You know, the Fed has made some more uh, dovish statements. They were all in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, last week for their annual uh, conference. The, the 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 sentiment, the tone was a bit moderated, not as hawkish. But I do believe that we're likely to see one or two, even two, uh, more rate raises by the end of the year. Now, again, it seems like the markets, no one is reacting. I tell you who is paying the price for this. One, it's the U.S. government, who is now paying over a trillion dollars a year in, in interest, net interest expense on, on national debt. And then, of course, the consumer. So we're seeing it across the board. You know, mortgages are now above 7%, uh, d difficult to get even at that. And we're seeing credit card rates uh, increase as well. So I, I think we're going to see another uh, rate raise or two. And I think it's hurting uh, those people that are still in the market for debt, whether they be uh, future homeowners trying to find uh, their first time home or a new home uh, or anybody who uh, has debt obligations trying to take care of their family. 
The other part of that that's so interesting to me, Michael, in our own backyard, we've been tracking a um, housing shortage, uh, which has caused all kinds of problems. But you go to the contracting side of things, and a contractor that has to have short-term interest loans, line of credit, uh, to create homes to sell, when that's now pushing 10%, they're done. They can't do this. Yeah, I think you're, you've hit on a really important point is that home builder segment, people who rely on you know, construction loans, you know, there are two things that are going on. There's the rising interest rates you described, but the other aspect of this is that banks are under enormous pressure because they're exposed to the commercial real estate sector, which is really suffering right now. And across the board, both big banks, regional, small community banks, they're all tightening up their credit. They're lending less. They have to lend at higher rates to be able to make money, but they've seen two things happen. One, they've seen deposits from their banks leave and go to other more attractive places right now. You can invest personally in a U.S. Treasury bill and, and get well over five, five and a half percent. A lot of the banks are still paying less than one percent on their deposits because they can't make money if they're paying five percent for their liabilities. So on the one, on the one hand, they're running out of funding. Uh, from depositors who are going elsewhere. They're relying on government emergency sources for their funding. On the other side, on the asset side, where they're trying to make new loans to make money, they're, been, they've been forced to tighten up their credit and not able to lend to people like home builders, developers, uh, others that need that, let's call it slightly more risky uh, loan capital in order to be able to make their business work. And Perry, the one other thing I just mentioned on this whole housing side is over the last few years, we've seen this rise of institutional investment in single-family residential homes, so private equity and others, uh, hedge funds and others, who are now, in, in many ways, crowding out the market for home buyers who actually want to live in their homes. And I think this is a uh, an unfortunate turn of events for, especially for young families and anybody really who is trying to uh, create wealth, put a roof over their heads, and, and have a store of value for their children as well. They're being crowded out by these institutional mm -hmm. buyers who seem less affected by the interest rate rise. There's another part of this, Michael, that's kind of got my brain on tilt, and you mentioned it briefly, and that is credit card uh, is are going up, expenditures, they're, they're maxing their credit card out. Same time, they're they're depleting their savings account in order to fight inflation, and yet the national inflation rate's still down around 4%. Something's missing here. What is it? Well, I think there's a couple things to note. So what is frightening to me is that you're seeing this dual effect on consumers. They're uh, leveraging up. They're taking on debt through their credit cards and otherwise. We're seeing it in the statistics around personal savings rates. At the same time, they're depleting uh, their savings accounts. So this tells me and tells all of us that households are not in great shape right now. They're running out of their reserves. Why is that happening? Is because practically speaking, inflation has been chewing up more and more of their pocketbook. I've written and said very publicly that first of all, I don't believe the headline CPA, uh, CP, CPI numbers, consumer <laughs> price index numbers, actually. Um, sometimes I don't believe my CPA either, but that's a different story. <laughs> the CPI, CPI numbers are underrepresenting, and I've done a lot of work around this to explain how and where the actual rising costs that consumers are experiencing, whether it's in their own groceries, what they actually take home, electricity prices, shelter for housing and otherwise medical costs, schools, all of these things have been, uh, inflation is much higher than this headline CPI number you see of three or 4%. I think it was just yesterday, the PCE inflation index came out saying three, 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 three point, uh, three percent 
when you exclude food and energy, it's actually 4.2%. Uh, the reason for that, shelter and housing costs are just very, very high, rising at nearly 5%. And again, those are all the official statistics, which I believe are underrepresenting what the consumer, what, what an individual, the citizens in, in your part of the world and mine, are actually facing. And so you're getting hit on both sides, depleting savings, rising costs, and we're, we're, we're heading in the wrong path here. Do you have any idea, though, Michael, why, according to what you just said there, why is the CPI leaving out two of the biggies, and that is groceries and energy? I mean, that's an everyday thing. Why isn't that part of the equation? Well, it is part of what they call their headline number, which does include it, but then they, they focus on excluding food and energy. Their point is that food and energy are the most volatile. There's a fair point here to, in the following sense that energy, gas prices, oil prices really drove the upswing in inflation in 2022. And then when we started seeing it come down from 9% in June of, of 2022 to 3 point something in June of 2023, that fall off was all about a reversal in those same oil prices that were flowing through to gas and energy and otherwise. So there's a lot of noise in the energy prices in particular. However, I do tend to agree with you that you cannot ignore, you can't just say, hey, don't look over here, don't pay attention to these things, because food and energy, whether it comes in the form of gas in your tank or the fuel that fuels the electricity, that creates electricity that goes into your home, it's just essential to our everyday lives. And of course, uh, food itself is transportation, transportation is energy, and so much really comes from this energy issue, which we have not resolved. Uh, oil prices are on their way back up. That is going to flow in prices at the pump here. It already has in late summer going into the fall. And I have said that I expect as a result of that, a tightening energy market, we are going to see a rise even in those uh, inflationary segments like food and energy where we've had some relief recently. Okay, just a couple more quick questions on the economy, because I do want to go back to the other part of your life, and I know your passion, but can, and I don't want to sound political. I'm just curious. Can you tell me what Bidenomics is? Well, Bidenomics is a disaster. I think I prefer the term Brandonomics because um, this has been uh, perpetuating the, the crisis that we have, both the energy crisis, number one, but number two, inflationary. Uh, so a core tenet of Bidenomics is stimulus. Like, let's keep um, spending money that we don't have. Deficit spending, by definition, is that we don't have the revenue, but we're going to spend it anyhow, and we're going to create debt to do that. One of the reasons I believe that we have not seen, officially speaking, recession, and recession officially is defined as two quarters of negative GDP, gross domestic product, well, one of the reasons for that is because we've seen uh, this trillion dollar plus stimulus package that has flown, flown into, moved into the economy. Now, keep in mind that trillion dollars came out of, of thin air from money that did not exist, and the U.S. has issued debt in order to pay for it. So we are seeing a, a false effect. Biden, Bidenomics is a mirage that comes from printing money, spending money that we don't have. By printing, I mean raising debt that someone in our future or our future generations future are going to have to pay for. And this is the this is the dilemma that we're in right now. Deficit spending leads to increases in national debt, which in turn leads to in inflation. It's a, a, a vicious circle mm -hmm. where I believe we've entered, uh, we've gone past the point of no return here, where the cost of servicing that debt is greater than our ability to, to repay. Yeah. 
All right, let me take a quick break. Let me say, folks, uh, Michael's website is stormwall.com. The title of his uh, book, Why America Matters, The Case for New Exceptionalism. And there's a lot to this. We're going to get into it when we come back. We'll be back to this week's interview in just a few seconds. In the meantime, we want to let you know that you can watch this interview, plus many more exclusive interviews that happen this week on the Dove's daily TV and radio show by visiting our website, thedove.us. And while you're there, sign up for our free daily devotional, The Word for You Today. Three months of daily readings that will connect you with God's Word. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Delighted to have back with us today, Michael uh, Wilkerson. He's an investor, strategic advisor. He's the founder of Stormwall.com. That's also his website, Stormwall.com. The author of a fascinating book called Why America Matters, The Case for New Exceptionalism. There's a picture of the cover of his book there on the TV screen for those of you watching on the Dove TV network. He's also the chairman of the board of Charity Water, which is a nonprofit organization helping to resolve global water crisis. Michael, um, you're fascinating. I I wish I had you for about three hours, but let me just see if I can cut through all this. You recently wrote an article that was kind of put my brain on till I had to think about this, but you said, uh, and how you examined that the United States States transitioned from post-war World War II ideals to pursuing a imperial type ambition. Never looked at it that way. Um, what provoked you? Sure. Uh, and part of what I talk about in the book, Why America Matters, when I say a new exceptionalism is I describe um, the history of America's foreign policy. So for our first 100, 150 years, America was largely isolationist in approach. Its view was keep us out of all of the wars, all of the craziness that's going on in Europe. That was one of the main driving factors that led uh, people to leave and come to this country looking for religious freedom, political freedom, but also to get out of uh, the mess that was going on in the wars between the European empires. In early in our history, something became known as the Monroe Doctrine basically said to the European powers, stay out of the Americas. This is our backyard, our territory. In exchange, we're going to stay out of interfering, taking sides in what's going on between the British and the French, et cetera. Mm. Now, we said that at a time when we really didn't have the power to enforce it, but nonetheless, that was our our principle, which we lived through, lived with, through the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. Now, of course, the global wars, the First World War and then the Second World War, really forced America to engage uh, on the international stage in a way that we had never done before. But something shifts uh, during during and after World War II, and the, the the politically the world is left in a back in a in a vacuum. Europe has been decimated. Japan and Europe really become protectorates of the United States, and the ideals that America was based on began to shift from this idea of we're going to defend and protect ourselves and ensure that Americans have their liberties protected or free to we are now the global policeman. And that really was the the, the, the mode of, of operation through the Cold War, where we saw ourselves as the defender of the free world. Now, at some point, this began to shift in that our commercial interests, 
our the national uh, excuse me the military industrial and financial complex mm. and our commercial interests really became aligned around this idea that U.S. interests should benefit and gain. That's not bad by itself, but it becomes bad. It becomes something that took on a very evil tendency when our national security, our, our intelligence apparatus, the CIA and others, uh, started to inflict not the idea, not the ideals of America, such as uh, liberty self-determination, democracy, but the political will through involvement in, in coups and assassinations and other things that ultimately, I argue, were, was not part of the American uh, uh, ideals, was not something that was sustainable. And in fact, you know, the idea that I speak about to separate the concept of patriotism or nationalism, which is love of country and defense of one's borders, that is very different from imperialism with this idea that we're going to sub subjugate and force our will on others around the world, whether they want it or not. With that comes enormous cost. We talked on the previous segment about a national debt and how you know we're now $32, $33 trillion in debt. Well, a good portion of that has been sustaining this global military empire um, and intervening in countries around the world to uh, limited benefit. And you think about what's ha what happened in Afghanistan, the outcome there, turning uh, the, the, the country, uh, entering to, to get rid of the Taliban and turning the country back over to the Taliban 20 years later. Similar situations happened in Iraq, Syria, and maybe happening now with the bill hundreds of billions of dollars being spent in Ukraine. So the idea here is that America at its, at its core was never intended or called to be uh, an empire, a, a ruler of the world, uh, but we need and that we need to turn our attention back to taking care of of our own nation, taking care of our own people. Yes, defending our interests when they're attacked, um, but the, we the pendulum has swung way, way, way too far to the other side. Uh, pardon the pun, but are you suggesting America first? Suggesting America first. Thank you for reminding me of a very simple way to say it. And, of course, that phrase has become politicized, and it should not be, because it speaks to a simple truth. What leader of their nation, what ruler, what president, what king, whomever, uh, does not want to take care of the interests of their own people first? That has absolutely been lost in the context of the, perm the permanent bureaucracy that has been in, uh, in ruling force let's call it a fourth branch of, of a secret government mm -hmm. uh, since World War II. And I think that that era in the 40s, 50s, and 60s really was the line of demarcation, uh, the capstone being the assassination of a sitting U.S. president, John F. Kennedy, where that deep state really seized the power. And uh, I think you see right now, and we saw it through the Trump administration, this wrestling match between that that ancient force and the ideas of this nation of democracy and otherwise. Perry, one last quick thought is it's interesting to me that every challenger candidate, presidential candidate challenger to the Biden administration is effectively saying the same thing, that the deep state, the permanent bureaucracy needs to be reformed, eliminated, undone, whatever words they might use. They wouldn't agree that they agree with each other but they are all saying something similar, which is this thing, this Leviathan that has been created needs to be confronted and needs to be reformed, dismantled in whatever way can be done without jeopardizing the national security of this country. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what little time I got left with you, but your 30,000 foot view, Michael, of the mess that we're now in. We have, 
we have the left going after the right, the right going after the left. We have two candidates that um, basically are being brought up on all kinds of charges. And it's kind of like, who's going to get to the finish line first and survive? <laughs> and in This the is going to be the, the, the election of the indicted versus the impeached. I don't think we've ever seen something like this uh, in our history. I am terribly saddened by what is clearly the weaponization of the, of the justice system, or the politicalization of uh, the judicial process, of our law enforcement agencies, our intelligence agencies, really the weaponization of everything. This is a crisis. This is a constitutional crisis. Pray that it does not end uh, in some form of civil war. I don't uh, hope it doesn't. I don't believe it needs to. But I don't think we've seen anything quite like this uh, well, certainly since the 1960s and everything that was going on there at that point in time, uh, but arguably since the 1830s or 40s when the country was so deeply divided over the issue of slavery. Okay, so of all the things going on, I, I realize politics being what it is, and you can have two candidates going after each other, but you just mentioned that there's something else in this one that's really bad, and that is we have a justice system who has now elevated themselves above the law that they have taken an oath to defend. I mean, this is so serious. Uh, we don't, and there doesn't seem to be a way to correct it other than an administration change. We're now in this constitutional crisis that there is, there may be a loophole here where we can't do anything about it. Uh, the, the oversight committees, all they can do is yell and scream and wave their sabers in the air, but they don't have the power to do anything. They can create an impeachment, but it's not going to go anywhere with a mixed branch of government. I mean, we're in a real mess here. We are, and I think you're going to see a number of things. So first of all, uh, this is not the first time we've we've had to confront, for example, the intelligence agency. So we had, you know, in the 1970s, the, the Senate Church Commission take a deep dive into what had been going on in the 50s and 60s at the CIA. Some reforms came about from that. Some did not. In substance, um, nothing really changed. There have been multiple committees and hearings around the, the JFK assassination. The first was a com completely shambolic uh, charade, but then others where there were well-intended congressmen and women trying to understand what had happened and were stonewalled by these same intelligence agencies. So something more fundamental has to happen. We had a reform president and President Trump who sought to uh, address some of these issues and was attacked very, very harshly. I think what has changed and what is different is that a lot of this is now coming to light. More and more Americans are becoming more and more aware of the depth of the issues that are going on in our federal government and are more and more determined to uh, to see change. Will the election of one president solve it by itself? Absolutely not. It's going to have to take something we haven't seen before, both grassroots, bottoms up and top down, and a real commitment to reform uh, that we have not seen to date. And that is going to be a painful process. You have faith in America? I do have faith in America. In spite of everything that I'm saying, um, I am optimistic and hopeful because I believe that God ha has called America to play a role in the world. Mm -hmm. And we were the first nation to really uh, establish ourselves with the idea that we were going to seek God, that we were going to create an environment, uh, a place, a community where covenant with God and community with one another was the most important aspect. And that was really the Puritan ideal. America grew out of those Puritan ideals around who we were as a nation. 
Uh, and even at the time of the founding of the country, the Constitution, while maybe some of the men didn't, didn't believe it in the orthodox way that the Puritans did, those ideals, they were still steeped in that belief, steeped in the hope, steeped in the idea that, that there was a God and that he had given us an, an, an unalienable rights uh, that couldn't be taken away by any government. And and I do believe that we have a role to play in, in, in the world and in, in God's grand design. Amen. And um, we need to confront the evil when we see it. And I think that is the message today is that men and women of faith need to stop assuming that someone else is going to do it. Stand up, uh, take part locally, take part in your community. I'm a realist, but I'm an optimistic realist. And I believe that the best is yet to come. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Beautifully said. One last thing before I run out of time. Uh, quickly tell us about your Charity Water work. This is fascinating. So Charity Water was founded in 2006 by Scott Harrison with the desire to address the world water crisis. At that time, there were nearly, nearly a billion people around the world that didn't have safe access to clean drinking water. And uh, now, let's see, gosh, it's been about 17 over 17 years. We have now been able to help millions and millions of people in developing countries around the world, mostly in rural environments where their own governments aren't paying that much attention to them. And you know, the the, the idea that Scott originally had was you know recognizing how much disease was waterborne, but also that water. This tagline that water changes everything. Mm-hmm. That clean, safe access to clean drinking water is foundational for life, for health. For uh, for women and girls to live full productive lives, uh, and uh, and and for children to be able to grow up healthy, it's not controversial. People on the left, people on the right, no one believes that children should have to drink dirty water, and so it's been a great uh, thing to be a part of over the years. Wow! How can they support that? Uh, go to cherrywater.org, and there's lots of ways to get involved. You can support an individual well, an individual project. You can help by giving monthly contributions, and 100% of the water that we, uh, the money that we raise publicly, goes to water projects around the world. This is audited and verified. Uh, we raise money separately to cover the administrative costs. So you can know uh, that public giving, every cent of your dollar will go to the field. Uh, charitywater.org. Fascinating, uh, Michael. Where can they get your book? So uh, you can go to whyamericamatters.com if you'd like to read more about it. But if you're just ready to buy it now, because thanks to Perry, uh, you appreciate that it's something worthwhile. Go to stormwall.com and you can order it directly from there. If you order it from this website, from the author, that's me, uh, I'll sign it for you uh, as I send it it on. So stormwall.com, check out the store there and you'll be able to, to pick up a hardcover copy signed by the author. Great. Thank you, friend. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your conviction. Thanks for your stand. And let's stay connected. You're fascinating. Thanks very much, Ray. God bless. See you later. Thank you for listening to this week's Focus Today podcast. Remember, you can visit our website to check out all the interviews we did this week on our daily Focus Today TV show at thedove.us. And if you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate us and share it with your friends.